tonight on Arena. Director Lisa Mulcahy talks to us about her new film, Lies We Tell, and Daniel Mason on the many stories contained in one house, all in his new novel, North Woods. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Lisa Mulcahy is well known for her work in both film and television, including Ridley Road and The Tourist for BBC, but now she directs the new Irish film Lies We Tell. The story is adopted from J. Sheridan Lafano's 1864 novel Uncle Silas, where Maud, uh, an orphaned heiress, must fight her guardian for her inheritance and indeed for her life. Maud is played by Agnes O'Kane, her uncle is played by David Wilmot, and I'm delighted to be joined in studio this evening by Lisa Mulcahy to talk about bringing lies we tell to the to the screen. And I was saying to you before we started, Lisa, Agnes O'Kane gets her second outing on the programme this evening. She was uh, in Thaddeus O'Sullivan's film that we were talking about last night, The Miracle Club, where she's squarely in 1960s, 1970s Dublin. Here she is in this kind of Victorian Gothic novel and she fits into both periods absolutely perfect. She's central to the story really, isn't she? She is. I mean, she's uh, pretty much in every scene. I'm not sure there is any scene that she's not Mm. in, uh, apart from establishing shots or something like that. Yeah, she's in everything. And uh, yeah, it's it's a story about her character, Maud, and... Um, the the trial that she has to endure to um, to keep her rightful um, inheritance mm. that her um, rather curious uncle Silas tries to take from her. Yeah, and even that even that name, Uncle Silas, <laughs> you know yeah. you know the period that yeah. you're in. We are in a, a kind of Victorian Gothic world, aren't we? We are, yeah. I mean, it is. Um, I suppose it is some regarded as a, the original novel as a gothic novel, but um, and when you read it, it's, there are quite sensational descriptions of characters, and um, it's very atmospheric. It's it's a very it's it's quite a tough read, mm. and the film is quite different. Um, the film we kind of take Maud and and really subvert her character from the book, but it certainly was worth reading for certainly atmosphere and tone and everything like that. And I'm guessing. To um, what you would have got in in Lafana was great vi- descriptions of visuals. Now you can't put up descriptions of visuals when it comes to to a film. But how did they guide you in the kind of the, the visual world that you made for the film? Well, um, yeah, the novel is very useful for that because it really is beautifully descriptive about the dark world that she uh, finds herself in and the kind of lonely existence that she has before her uncle comes along. But um, so, so we were always going to take that and how we were going to project the uh, the visuals in the film. And mm. we, you know, the film is all set in one location and we found a fabulous location. Yeah, where is that house? So that's Ardgillon Castle, which is run by Fingal Castle. County Council and it's in Balbriggan and it's open to the public. I had never heard of it. It's Mm. just incredible uh, grounds, forests, rose gardens. It's by the sea. The house, you can visit the house and you know, it, it's hugely untouched in many ways, um, which is, you know, an, an original kitchen is just impossible to find, you know, that that it's almost intact. It was just the most extraordinary location and they were just wonderful to us and, and you know, welcomed us with open arms, which you can't say for all location owners. <laughs> you can imagine that sometimes there's a little bit of to and fro. Yeah, <laughs> I would yeah, imagine. yeah, no, they were wonderful. But yeah. you, had you been watching Stanley Kubrick, had you been watching Barry Lyndon in, ahead of the making of this no. film? Because you, you 
shoot in candlelight. That's yes, why I bring yeah. it up, which is obviously Barry Lyndon is famous for that particular yes, aspect. that's right. Uh, yeah. But you shoot, the night scenes are all just in candlelight. Yeah. They are, yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to make a film where I don't use any lights at all. Um, and uh, because we have the budget restrictions we had on this, we just immediately, when I, myself and Eleanor Bowman, who's our cinematographer, when we spoke about it, we just, from the very start, we said mm. we're just going to use candles. And and I think if I had more money, I probably would have had a bigger fight about doing that. But if you've seen the film, you see how stunning the candlelight is. Well, particularly that, you know, there are certain creepy things that happen at night in, in various rooms and the fact that they're kind of half in shadow and you can't yeah. quite see what that adds to the to the atmosphere. Yeah. It really does. I mean, there's quite a few scenes where, mm. it, you know, the action is just being lit by one candle, yeah. literally by one candle. And uh, because the cameras are so sophisticated now, you know, you can capture images and yeah. um, really creative ones with doing, just doing that. All right. Well, uh, let's let's get a, a sense of what's actually going on in the film. Um, the the Maud character, uh, she inherits this house, but she's too young to fully own it yet. So she has to have some trustees looking after it. But her father, who has died, has suggested that her uncle, her uncle Silas, in fact, should mind her uh, in mm. the meantime. So let's uh, listen to a scene with Uncle Silas, played by D- David Wilmot here. And he's asking Maud, played by Agnes O'Casey, about her dresses and who is responsible for them. Your uncle Silas was a most expensive, vicious young man. A friend, was he not, of your late father? An acquaintance, rather. Married beneath himself, though to do him justice, I believe he only intended to ruin her. I fail to see why a youthful mesalliance bears upon my uncle's present fitness as guardian. May I be blunt? Certainly. Your trustees would be remiss in our duties should we fail to take into account and consider the implications of the historic... You propose to be blunt, Doctor. ...suspicion of murder committed by your uncle. My uncle was exculpated by the inquest. That gambler took his own life. Perhaps you'd care to view the suicide room, Captain, in your new capacity as trustee. Another time. Possibly. Thank you. Miss Rothen, what I mean to say is that your trustees are amenable if you would care to mount a challenge. You may remain trustees of my property. My person is none of your concern but that of my uncle. That is what you kindly offer, to assume the additional burden and the allowance which accompanies it and have me elect you as guardian, rather than my own flesh and blood. I will not challenge the will or my father's choice of guardian. There we go. Actually, I, I, I teed up the wrong cue there, the wrong clip for myself there. That was Dr. Brierley, played by Mark Doherty, Captain Ilberry, played by Kieran Roach, advising Maud, played by Agnes Casey. They're her trustees. And you can see, you get a real sense, Lisa McKay, director of Lies We Tell, is with me in, in studio this evening. You get a real sense from that scene, at any rate, Lisa, just how steely a character Maud is. She's not going to be, you know, have the wool pulled over her eyes by anybody. No, no, and she she craves a family. You yeah. know, she she's basically lived her entire life alone in that house with her father, who mm. was a reclusive character. So she actually, even though Silas has a, it's kind of um, rather. Um, dark reputation hmm. she craves uh, family and so she wants him to come and she wants him to be him to be part of her family and and her cousins and he comes with he comes with family 
And he comes, yeah, with her two cousins and, and a governess and um, and she's welcoming. She mm. wants this. But of course, very, very quickly in in very subtle ways, um, the the kind of the welcoming family actually becomes something. Uh, yeah, well, let, let me let me go to the Uncle Silas clip then <laughs> that, I, that I thought I was going to play a minute ago. I have it. I have it in the right spot now, I think. Um, David Wilmot as Uncle Silas. And this is when he's beginning. You, you begin to think well, maybe he's made a little bit nastier than you think. Maud. Yeah. Maybe you should should think again. Who makes your dresses? Mrs. Rusk, I think, ordered this one. Mary Quince and I planned it. Mrs. Rusk, the housekeeper. <laughs> Mary Quince. My maidservant. There is something a trifle whimsical about it. Whimsical has not been a frequent word used in this house. Your father had a taste for being miserable. I would rather enjoy this life than contemplate my mortification in the next. You were an heiress and ought not to appear like a jack pudding. <laughs> there we go. Um, David Wilmot as Uncle Silas and Agnes O'Casey as Maud in a scene from Lies We Tell and director Lisa Mulcahy with me in studio this evening. Even in that, you can hear the, the atmosphere that is there. There is music. There is music there and the sound design is quite important to it and sometimes the music is part of the action as much as much as anything else but those kind of eerie dialogue in I'm saying dialogue heavy because I'm kind of surprised by the amount of dialogue that's in there because often in a film you know it's it there's an absence of dialogue but this has plenty oh this is a lot of dialogue and it's you know classic Victorian dialogue mm. about um where you really really have to concentrate on the subtext and what somebody is actually saying they're never but, saying what they're saying uh, no no but he's a master manipulator so everything he says and everything he does uh, is considered and is is you know a means to the end that he is seeking and and that's very early on that scene is very yeah. early on and and he starts very early on and and in some Uncle Silas think, oh, well, there's the villain of the piece. Um, then he's not quite the villain of the piece. Later on, you see, well, OK, maybe he's not as bad as I thought he was. Then in comes his his uh, his son. OK, so let's have a listen to his son here, played by Chris Wally. This is Edward. This is uh, Maud's cousin. Again, Agnes O'Casey as Maud here. And this is the cousin Edward's little confession to her. Well, I imagine you have a shrewd suspicion of the object of this tete-a-tete. I haven't the slightest conception. Kindly move aside. You know that it is totally impossible for a fellow such as myself and a, a charming girl such as yourself to meet continually as we do without a liking growing on one side or another. I suppose I needn't pretend to be violently in love. Please don't. Sensible girl. Governor will see to it. We needn't go into the particulars. Please don't continue. Beg pardon? Am I to suppose you formed an attachment for me? Mm Mm-hmm. A sincere attachment. (laughs) Most sincere. You do me too much honour, sir. If you require some lovemaking, then I'm your Have the goodness to let me pass. There we go. (laughs) Chris Wally as Edward, Agnes O'Casey as Maud in a scene from Lies We Tell. Lisa Mulcahy, director, is with me in studio. 
She really is not at all safe with any of these people, yet each one of them has a good side to them as well. Yeah, I mean, that's there are, the great joy of the script. There are times when you you feel you do feel sorry for all of these characters, mm. and even at times you you kind of sympathise a bit with Silas. Yeah, um, and and that's what make character makes characters interesting is that they they are nuanced, but they all do play to his tune in mm. some way or, or other. You know, and, and, and just briefly and finally, I, I know that Ridley Road did. Had, did you ca- was was Agnes O'Kissy cast in Ridley Road? After this film or had you already seen her before? No, I was working on Ridley Road when COVID happened. So we Mm. had to stop doing Mm. that. And I came back here and we decided during COVID that we would cast this film because we knew we were going to be shooting directly after Ridley Road. And um, so we cast Aggie. And then when we went back to do Ridley Road, we had lost our lead actress. And I told them about Aggie and I said, I think you should see her. And they did. And they loved her. So, in fact, we shot Ridley Road first. It was right. Aggie's first job and then we did this afterwards. Right, well, she certainly has a bright future ahead of her. I don't think there's yeah, any, she's doubt, wonderful. Yeah, any doubt about that. And a great film, great, very tense in places, I must say. And I love that candlelight aspect of things as well. Lisa, thanks so much for coming in to us tonight. That is Lisa Mulcahy, director of Lies We Tell, which will be in cinemas from this Friday. Daniel Mason is a Pulitzer-nominated Californian writer and an assistant professor in the Stanford University Department of Psychiatry. Northwoods is his latest novel. It tells of the various inhabitants of a single house deep in the woods of New England in stories spanning four centuries, from a battle-weary English soldier who turns his hand to apple orchards to spinster twins consumed with envy and desire, right up to the the contemporary day and uh, huckster mediums, crime reporters and even sex maniacs. Beatles, believe it or not. Delighted to have Daniel Mason join us on the line this evening. And and Daniel, you know, they say if you're going to buy a property, there are only three things to consider. Uh, Location, location, location. And I'm guessing that when it came to the writing of this novel, there were only three things you had to consider. Location, location and location. That's right. Um, Lovely to be on the programme. This is... uh, a new experience for me as a Californian to be find myself wandering around the woods of New England. Um, but during the pandemic, I found myself doing so and um, was very much enchanted by the woods that I found there. And within those woods, did you find a particular building or did you start to imagine a particular building that might house the many stories that you tell in North Woods? It's funny, I was constantly looking for one, uh, a place that would sort of fit my characters perfectly. Um, eventually, it ended up being a place cobbled together of a number of different homes that I sort of stumbled across as I wandered about. So you couldn't find the perfect um, house, so you had to invent one yourself. Um, that That's would, right. That, that would house all of these stories. Did you, st- I mean, it, it runs chronologically. The stories start in the 1760s, I think, is probably when we're, we're starting out with a Puritan couple who, who are a couple who run away from a Puritan colony. We're in that period of time. And it brings us, as I say, right up to uh, contemporary times. Did you start uh, at the beginning, as it were, or did one or other of the stories come to you first? No, I started at the beginning. Um, I had I had thought that I'd liked the idea of, of writing a story set in a single place was, was there very much from the start. And I thought that 
well, why don't I begin with the construction of this house and, and try to imagine the people, the spirit and couple that you mentioned who run away and, and build this kind of stone cabin in the woods. Um, and then as time went on, different characters came along and began to fill the place. I had some thoughts about who I might like to include along the way. Um, but I tried to to build, I guess, as one would build a house um, chronologically. Yeah, and, and what strikes me about the particular, I think they, they they throw a stone to kind of find the place that they want, but the land itself seems to have a memory. The the, the plot of land seems to have a memory, and the things that have happened on that uh, plot of land seem to affect everybody who comes afterwards. I hope we haven't last, lost Daniel in the midst of that. Have we lost you, Daniel? No, no, I'm no. still here. No, just I was hearing a beep. I was wondering what it was. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm still here. Um, no, that's that's very much right. Um, the the idea that the land's persisting there, and and the animals, and 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 the trees. This is something that I never really thought of the forest this way until I began to to work on the book. I had sort of thought of it as somewhat timeless place, or um, at least a static place, the kind of place that I'd walk through and see what was there and would be there tomorrow. And and I think there's something maybe about the New England woods in particular, given there's been so many changes to the land there, that uh, the more and more I began to read and more and more I began to walk around, it, it just felt like what I was seeing, um, I was struck by how what I was seeing was not just what was there now, but really something that bore traces of the past. Um, and so that became a driving force um, idea behind this book, thinking about what kinds of sort of ghosts both literal um, but also mm. metaphorical, remain in any place that we live in. And particularly, I thought there was something highly evocative about one of the early stories, which is about a man called Osgood, who in fact was a soldier, but he becomes this great grower of apples and of and of orchards. And indeed, his daughters, his twin daughters, Alice and Mary, are involved with him in, in that particular um, activity as well. There is something potent in in the imagery of the apple, the idea of the seed um, going into the ground and and the tree sprouting up. It's one of the ways that you breathe life into the land itself and the natural world. Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about apples. I'm I'm in England right now and I've been traveling around for the book and I see, um, as I go about by train, I see these apples bloom, um, fruiting by the side of the track. And uh, in, in New England, of course, you see the same thing, um, often in the woods, distant from anything else, and you wonder who planted who planted the tree. Uh, it offers not only not, not only sustenance while you're walking around in the woods, um, but also many... Um, you know, a, a long connection, of course, to to Western literature to work with everywhere from uh, interpretations of the Adam and Eve story through group, Greek myths, mm. and um, it was often just a you know, question of, sort of what what to choose. Felt too rich at times. Yeah, and and I guess you're talking about New England in what you would call the fall. I mean, the the autumn in New England is is infamous for its beauty and for its its array of colours. Is that a very different? Is there a very different feel even to? the woods of New England, and I'm guessing the sunny climes of California, where you're originally from. <laughs> right. Very different and um, very different. And, and so much so that um, when I was in New England working on the working on the book, I found I, I hadn't thought that this would happen, but I found myself, um, especially that first fall, unable to write about anything about the fall. The the, the color changes are, are daily so sensational that it's hard to think of anything else. And again, the um, sort of nature's bounty and the way it comes all of a sudden at once is very, very dramatic. Um, that really directed the writing of the book. I think it sort of set me off on a path and um, made that apple tree. And that apple tree remains 
um, both um, both after this this hmm. soldier's death, but also much later, remains central to the story. Yeah, and and the other thing that is central to the story is yeah, the location remains pretty constant, but we get shifts. It it is told in chronological order, and and characters by the magic of fiction can be there in different time frames as well. But the language, the register of the language shifts from period to period. How important was that for you in the, I suppose, the way of hooking the reader in? Because you kind of know where you were, are in time, almost by the language on the page. Yeah, that was really important for me. So as I, at first I thought it would just be my standard voice, but as I was reading, I came across, I would come across these old documents in my research, whether it's re- people's reports of their captivities during wars or fast forwarding into the future um, crime um, pulp crime mm. um, pulp magazines doctor's case reports in the beginning I was just very much caught up in the sort of different kind of music of these pieces but then also as I was working on them I began to feel like that same story that I was mentioning about the forest where you see that the time layered upon time um, that occurs also in our literature as well. The language that we speak is something which is very much contains traces of the languages of the past, our English of the past. Yeah, one one of the notable um, cases there is the case of a, a, a and we're um, maybe you give me the exact date. I think we're in kind of the twentieth century period when we get into the story of Robert S who is, uh, this is a case study of a young man with, with schizophrenia um, and, and, and hallucinations. And he, well, he has, a, he has a, a, a Super 8 movie camera. He thinks he can record his, his hallucinations in, in some way. Given your background in psychiatry, I wondered where that story had come from. So I, I think that, you know, he, he, he suffers from an illness, um, which is one that, that I that I often treat in the setting that I work in. At the same time, I've always, I've been a psychiatrist for a while, yet I haven't written about an illness like schizophrenia as directly as with this book. And I think it's always been difficult for me to separate, to um, fully keep my my writing and, and, and my medicine, and knowing what to do with it, two of them. For some reason, this book, it felt a little bit more natural. He's not based on anyone in particular, but at the same time, the, the idea which drives him, which is that he's experiencing something which other people aren't experiencing, that's something very familiar to me from my patients. And of course, the frustration that he feels in trying to convince the world that what he's experiencing is real um, is also something that I think a lot of people experience. And what do you think kept you from from writing directly uh, into your the psychiatric side of your life, I suppose, or that psychiatric practice within your life? What do you think brought you away from that? Were there, were there ethical considerations in your mind? Uh, that's It's a wonderful question, one I think about a lot. I, I think there are ethical considerations. I think that people can write very powerfully and movingly and well about their patients. But at the same time, I also feel like um, I, I never know the impact that my writing mm-hmm. about my patients might have and, and that it's better to keep um, my my clinical life and and my my fictional life somewhat separate and and not to belittle um, the story of Robert S, albeit that it is a fictional tale and the idea of hallucinations. But I wondered about the relationship between um, let's face it, dreaming up things is what writing fiction I- is all about. Do you see any relationship between psychiatry, uh, I suppose, and writing in that respect? Yeah, I, I think that you know one sort of very broadly psychiatry and, and writing are both concerned with person's internal world. Um, but at the same time, like you mentioned, the connection that you draw, which is, 
of the creative things mm. that a mind can do, um, that can occur both in a situation which is very productive and wonderful, like writing fiction, but at the same time, it can be associated with a kind of pathology and really um, make a person suffer very much. And, and and looking at that connection and trying to imagine how something that can be both powerful in one situation, but um, really unsettling and threatening mm. in another, um, is, is one that, um, that sort of fascinates me. The other thing is, throughout the book, as well as these shifts in periods, every in historical periods and in the, the linguistic register of those various periods, you have ballads <laughs> interspersed <laughs> throughout certain sections. Is there an accompanying CD? Is there a company, an accompanying <laughs> set of recordings planned? Uh, I would, I would absolutely love that. Um, I, I briefly broached the idea when we were making the audio book, but it was shot down pretty quickly. They thought we should just go with lyrics only, but. I I um I love old I love old ballads and and um you know they don't allow novelists to write full books of ballads but I felt like this book was a chance to sneak a couple of them in and not get in trouble. So is there a secret ballad writer in Daniel Mason bursting to get out? <laughs> that's right, that's right. My publisher will kill me, but yeah, maybe the next book will be all ballads. We'll see. Yeah, and, and finally, Daniel, um, there's there's a chapter titled. Two bed, two bathrooms, two BD, two BA. Did you have fun, given that I started with the idea of location, location, location and, and buying properties? Did you have fun looking at how sometimes real estate agents descriptions of places don't quite match the place that you go to see? Oh, God, yes. No, every place that I, I would look at when I look at old houses or when I've looked for a house myself, of course, they talk about the, how it's a wonderful, there's a wonderful history and it's a refuge and it's peaceful. Um, but of course, any house that's been around for several hundred years has seen its fair share of terrible things. Uh, so, uh, yes, no, that was really kind of a stab at the, a poke at the, the real estate market, I'd say. Well, wonderful to have spoken with you this evening, Daniel. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. That's Daniel Mason, and he was speaking to us about his novel, North Woods, which is published by John Murray. The Reckoning is a four-part factual drama about the predatory sex offender Jimmy Savile. It stars Steve Coogan. It premiered on BBC One last night. Initially announced in 2020, the series has been the subject of intense media scrutiny, with many commentators questioning the necessity of a drama about the life of the disgraced DJ and broadcaster. It was written by Neil McKay. Each episode is bookended by real-life interviews with some of Savile's victims. No preview copies of The Reckoning were available to Irish journalists, so Chris Wasser watched the first episode for us on BBC One last night. Let's have a listen to the trailer from this uh, from Jimmy Savile. I'm not an act. What you see is what you get. You'll be in touch. He's our man. He was one of the biggest manipulators of people to rise to the status that he did. The investigation found no evidence to justify the allegations. And do you consider that to be the end of the matter? He groomed the whole nation. There are rumours that there's another sign to you. What rumours might those be? It gets away with it because no one else sees it. It's a violation. As old as I am now, I would have danced on his grave. There we go. That's the uh, trailer from The Reckoning, the BBC One series about Jimmy Savile. Uh, First episode last night, second episode tonight, uh, Chris. 
that trailer gives us a sense of the style of, of this presentation, which is both fictionalised and there are real life documentary style interviews in here as well. Yeah, there's some dramatic license in here, but it actually opens with some real archive footage. Um, so the series actually opens with scenes from Jimmy Savile's funeral in 2011. He died on October 29th, 2011 at the age of 84. And in actually quite a, a clever and, and, and shocking move, the series opens by telling us when he died and also telling us that, you know, he was this respected DJ and broadcaster and then showing us scenes of, you know, his adoring public or, or so we thought kind of, you know, celebrating his life at this funeral. And you're thinking straight away, what are the, what's the angle that they're going with with this series? And then in the next scene, it says, no, this is what he really was. He was a predator. He was a sex offender. And then we see and hear from four of his uh, of his of his victims, survivors of his horrendous abuse, um, and they tell us in their own words, you know, their, about their experience very briefly with Jimmy Savile, and that's when we go into the dramatized uh, uh, version of events. So this series, then, when we move away from 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 the real footage, it's a reconstruction of sorts, and it stars Steve Coogan playing the part of Jimmy Savile. Yeah, and, and just on that, the Steve Coogan playing the part of Jimmy Savile, and let's face it, Steve Coogan, Steve Coogan is associated predominantly with Alan Partridge and yes. and the comedy. World. He obviously has done serious filmmaking as well, not least of which was Philomena uh, in there. But when you think Jimmy Savile, I think for most people, you're going to think the long blonde hair and you're going to think the, the big cigar in, in his mouth. Difficult to move from that potentially comic image into the sort of serious treatment that this needs to get. Yeah, that's true. And and that's been one of the chief concerns, I think, with Steve Coogan's mm. casting. It's it's difficult to believe that this this series was actually announced three years ago and that, you know, there's been all sorts of rumours about why it was delayed. Uh, there were stories that maybe, you know, the, the, the filmmakers, the writers, Nick McKay, the producer, Jeff Pope, that they were taking their time meticulously editing and going over scenes so as to kind of handle and, and, and convey this material as sensitively as, as, as possible and to be respectful to the survivors but there was an awful lot of chit chat about Steve Coogan's performance before anyone had even seen any footage Mm. from the series and I think that's probably because Steve Coogan is known as Alan Partridge. He is known as a comic performer. But I believe that he is a better actor than some people give him credit for. You mentioned Philomena there. Mm. He gave a wonderful performance in another Jeff Poe project, Stan and Ollie, uh, opposite, yeah. uh, playing Stan Laurel opposite John C. Reilly. Uh, very underappreciated performance there. This guy can do drama and this guy isn't just an impersonator in a comic. He's a terrific actor. And here, he's not giving us a greasy impersonation. He's not giving us just, you know, uh, four hours of mimicry. It is a tremendous performance you know, we'll get into, you know, mm. why the series is made and the, re- and, the, and the rest of the series around him. But whatever about all of that, it is fantastic because he's more interested in kind of discovering what it was that made this monster than just giving off, as I say, an, an impersonation. Let's listen to, to Steve Coogan uh, again. We can't get anything specifically from the, yeah. the series itself. But here he is speaking to the website Collider about why he took on the role of Jimmy Savile. He provokes a very, very... The, the real revulsion uh, when I said I was doing it. A lot of people wondering why we're doing it, but as all these things, um, I think people. It's a, he is a, was a fascinating man and was able to hoodwink a whole nation uh, because he was so famous and successful and was at the time well loved by people before they discovered the awful truth about him. I'm of the mind that you know to to sort of prevent these things happening again, you have to look at them. It's like an uncomfortable yeah. process, but you, you sweep things under the carpet and try and turn your back on someone like this. Then I think the people, a lot of the, the revolution is because people feel the whole nation was either hoodwinked or, if you're being less kind, complicit 
in enabling him to do the nefarious things he did. And that's Steve Coogan there speaking about why he took on the role of Jimmy Savile in the series The Reckoning. Uh, first episode in BBC One Television last night. Second episode will be tonight. And then the other, there are two further episodes. Two further Chris, episodes. One next Monday night and, the, other, and the concluding episode next Tuesday. So four, four episodes in, in total. Um, one of the things that they, they do in episode one is that they have a journalist mm. interviewing him as if it were, you know, an actual event that you're, you're seeing in front of you. Is there a basis in truth for that? There is, yes. So around 2007, I think it was, uh, maybe t- t- somewhere between 2004 and 2007, Dan Davies, who was a, a writer and a journalist and then went on to become the author of Hidden in Plain Sight or In Plain Sight, The Life and Lies of Jimmy Savile, mm. which was published after his death. Uh, he was sent to interview Jimmy Savile at his home and he was trying to, uh, to, to, to write a biography about his life. And it is quite a clever framing device to bring us into, as I say, we have some real archive footage, we have the testimonies and then what is it that will bring us into the story well let's have Jimmy Savile almost tell it himself to this journalist um, that is kind of a clever way in mm. um, and as he those, keeps saying in the, the beginning of that interview oh what you see is what you get what you me. see is what you get and the interviewer straight away I, this is the thing that the series keeps pushing out is whether it's Dan Davies Mark Stanley playing this version of Dan Davies whether it's a hospital reporter we see whether it's people you know in the BBC when Jimmy Savile starts to make a name for himself in, on, on radio and on television there are an awful lot of worries glances and an awful lot of people saying oh there's rumours about this person's behaviour or there's you know I've heard stories about this person that's what Dan Davies is doing at the start he's try- he's, he, he says to Jimmy Savile himself I've heard stories about you and Jimmy Savile says what stories what you see is what you get and of course that wasn't the case you know there was a horrific story there uh, and then Savile takes us back we see him you know working as a DJ in in, in, in north in the north of England uh, we see him kind of you know gain this, this popularity among younger fans this uh, uh, sort of difficult relationship with his mother in in that you know his mother here is portrayed as someone who might have known that her son was no good that there might have been something wrong and yet I mean the the, the story would have been about this absolute adulation adoration of his mother by Jimmy Savile I mean do we know what the evidence for the mother possibly knowing is there any of that discussed or shown to us it's a tricky one because we do know that Jimmy Savile in real life knew that he was the son that you know the mother and father never wanted there were six kids before him and, 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 and when she you know when his mother was pregnant again she thought oh no not another one and Jimmy Savile you know is on record as, as, as having said that and he knew that and you know he kind of he did discuss his childhood a lot and you know about whether he kind of missed out on the love that like his siblings would have had but that's a very peculiar way into trying to explain why Jim, Jimmy Savile was the way he was so there are scenes in here that are clearly created you know with dramatic license uh, you know in mind like there's there's a scene where we have his mother Agnes uh, portrayed by uh, brilliantly uh, played by Gemma Jones in a confession booth or in a confession box telling a, a, a Catholic priest that you know there might be something wrong with her son there's no way that we can know that that sort of that that sort of thing happened so it does you know it does make for interesting moments in a drama but I think they might be made up yeah, and again, we have, I suppose, in in the case of people who were abused by Savile, if they have given their testimony, we know that it's their, their testimony. We're seeing an op- in the opening section that I watched, really disturbing scene where he's there with two young yeah. women, possibly teenagers. Um, with his adopted son. This is, um, yeah, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to watch. I mean, I th- that, that that much is obvious. Uh, there's been an awful lot of chatter beforehand about how this might be, you know, glorifying some aspects of what happens, about how there might be a bit of hero worshipping going on. That, of course, is all nonsense. That's not what we're getting here. Uh, but neither are we getting, you know, 
an enjoyable piece of entertainment. There's nothing enjoyable about this. It's, it is quite stomach turning and it does not shy away from difficult scenes. I mean, Nick, Nick McKay and Jeff Pope, they are very good and, you know, they don't show us too much here. Yeah. But the suggestion, the dar- the darkness around some scenes, this knowing that every time a young woman or a girl is introduced and Jimmy Savile sees her, knowing that there is going to be a difficult scene up ahead, it's, it's difficult to watch. But does it shy away then from pointing the finger uh, at those? It's, it's all very well that there are people saying, oh, I knew something was going on and there are rumours around it. Does, does it address that the, potentially the people there's a wonderful line in that trailer that we played where one, one man says he groomed the nation yeah uh, and Steve Coogan refers to well if you like it possibly but it, it could alter you are you complicit in, in the whole affair as well well to be fair I mean we are just a quarter of the way through and we only see you know uh, there, there is only one scene that takes mm. place in the BBC where we have you know some BBC executives kind of brushing off whatever rumours or stories they might have yeah. heard about him so we don't know how that's that you know we don't know how it's going to handle things in the Jimmy Savile story about like you know who else was to blame here why didn't anyone speak up and there's been an awful, an awful lot of uh, 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 com- there's, there's been a lot of conversation around the fact that why is the BBC making this you know this is Jimmy Savile's you know old of house of course why? if they didn't make it the question would be why didn't what, the why BBC not? make but this? it's actually an ind- technically an independent production produced mm. by ITV Studios with BBC airing it why maybe because they have the bigger reach it's a tricky one Sean because I still don't know an hour into this thing I still don't see what the purpose is here and Steve Coogan and, Je- and, and, and Nick McKay have said that in making this they hope they're helping the survivors and to have the survivors on board and, and, and to give them their own voice there is th- that you know mm. you, can, you can argue okay well then this is helping them this is, this is a cathartic process for them but at the same time there's nothing here that we haven't seen from you know the countless exposés the documentaries the investigations into this th- there's nothing new here and I just I can't help but think that it's it's inherently problematic and sort of unnecessary and a little bit, you know, it may be a bit too soon too because let's not forget that it was only after Jimmy Savile died that we learned the extent of his yeah. crimes. So I'm not too sure if this series was really necessary. Competently made, brilliantly performed, but I don't think man, any of us really need, I don't think a lot of people will need will it in their lives. Will you watch the next three episodes? I have no desire to, Sean, because the, the, the first episode, it just, it turned my stomach and I realised that's what it was supposed to do. Yeah. But it's not something I can say I would look forward to watching at the end of the day. So I respect the fact that I'm not about to tell people what stories they can and can't tell. But this is kind of one of those series that I just, I don't think I want to watch the rest of. Chris Wasser telling, talking to us there about The Reckoning based on the life of Jimmy Savile. It continues tonight on BBC One at 9pm, remaining two episodes airing next Monday and Tuesday once again at 9pm. Lost Lear by Dan Colley made its debut in last year's Theatre Festival and scooped a total of four awards at the Irish Time Theatre Awards, including Best New Play and Audience Choice Award. It focuses on the central character of Joy, an older woman living in a home with dementia, who her carer Liam enters into the world that she has created for herself, where she looks back at her younger self and her career as an actor. Lost Lear returns for a nationwide run from October the 19th. I'm delighted to be joined in studio this evening by the man who conceived the play, Dan Colley. Holly, when, when we hear a play about dementia and we hear Lost Lear, obviously there's a connection, well, I'm presuming there's a connection there, Dan, between the world of dementia and the world of Shakespeare's King Lear. What is that connection? How does it show itself in the play? 
Yeah, well, our play, as you said, is about somebody with dementia and the particular care method that they're going through is one that's inspired by something called a speckle method, where the carers actively identify an old, comforting, familiar memory from their pre-dementia past in which they feel really empowered and important. And so everybody who comes into contact with them has to sort of get on board with that. Um, So that might be somebody who is really good at playing bridge. So they're always playing bridge, even if that's Mm. not something that you can necessarily do with dementia, there's all of the sort of props that come around it. The tea, the cards, the cloth. In our case, our character was a former actor and I thought well, it might be good to have something that might have a bit of resonance with her later story. And so she's returning again and again to a time when she played as a young person, a very sort of experimental production of King Lear in which they cast a young woman in the role of Lear. And this is her special theme. This is the thing that she wants to return to again and again. Mm. And it's what all the characters have to interact with her within. In some ways, I mean, I wonder, is it akin to this idea? I know that some people with dementia they will remember songs and they can sing songs. They will remember all of the lyrics of, of songs. Is there evidence out there? Or are you extrapolating this idea that perhaps somebody like an actor may remember parts, may remember lines from parts that they played years ago, even though uh, there would be other things that happened five minutes ago that they won't remember. It's similar, exactly that. It's those memories get embedded that much deeper and that much longer when they, as you say, particularly Mm. with music, that's among the last things that uh, that tends to to go with people's memory. But when it's sort of hardwired in in a kind of an early stage, something that you've gone over again and again. Um, But also in our case, I suppose, we wanted to tell a story about a person who had similarly unfinished business with a child of theirs that they um, that they become estranged from. And so as she's working her way through Lear, there may be some sort of maybe sublimated idea that what she's actually trying to do is try and get back together and try and apologise to Cordelia, who she's gotten um, who yeah. she's become and, estranged And in from. this case, the son is a, a character called Connor, played by, by Peter Daly. And, and I guess that kind of the the theme of Lear and the theme of disinheriting the Cordelia and the pain that that causes all around it fits perfectly into I suppose she's the forgotten daughter we could we could put it that way yeah it fits into this idea of the character with dementia exactly it fits perfectly except in our play he can't quite play the role because Cordelia has a maybe uh, a more gracious heart than him or maybe yeah. she has less to forgive but he can't quite play the role. He can't say, uh, he can't say, I forgive you. He can't turn to her mm. and say, um, no cause, you have caused, you have no cause to cause me pain. Yeah, so there, it's, it's a complex situation, not as straightforward as just, we'll, we'll do the play and then everything will be fine. Let's listen to a clip actually which will give us a sense of what's involved. So Joy here is played by Venetia Bowl, the 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 Lear character in some ways in in the whole mix, Liam who is the um, who is the therapist is played by Manus Halligan and then Connor the character of the son is played by Peter Daly and they're they're rehearsing here and they're giving um, Connor the Peter Daly character a chance at playing to Cordelia to see how he gets on. Well, what did we think? I thought that was good, Joy. I thought that was great. Great. Could I try? Who is it? He's. Oh, the understudy. Yes. We're rehearsing in the understudies today. Please? I think we should. No. While we have the understudy here, we should rehearse them in. Is he off book? He's not off book yet, but... Please, I'm learning the lines, but I'd love to give it a go. Oh, all right. 
right, let's see where we are with it. Oh, you kind gods, cure this great breach in his abused nature. The untuned and jarring senses, oh, wind up. Wind. Wind up of this child-changed father. So please, your majesty, that we may wake the king. He hath slept long. Is he arid? Arrayed. Arrayed? Arrayed? Aye, madam. In the heaviness of his sleep, we put fresh garments on him. O my dear father, restoration hang. Thy medicine on my lips and let this kiss. Aleem, I can't bear it. He's breaking up the lines. Could we try it again? Please, I'd love to try it again. Again? Yeah, I'd like another go at it. But you know the way Liam does it sometimes, when he says things that aren't exactly... that aren't in the play. You want to play the intention? Yeah, that. Well, that's specific to Liam. He can do that. Well, please, I'd like a go of it. I'll be quick. Maybe no harm, Joy. Show the young lad. He's not a young lad. He's a middle-aged man. <laughs> I know, but he, he's new. He could do have been shown how things are done around here. And that's Venetia Bow as the character of Joy, the King Lear character in some ways. Manus Halligan playing the character of Liam, the therapist in that particular session. And Peter Daly struggling, well not Peter Daly, Connor struggling Connor, to play crucially. the, 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 yeah. the character from, of Cordelia. Something he's never done before, which <laughs> yeah. is act badly, so yeah. fair play Peter so Daly. Peter Daly is doing a great <laughs> job at playing a character who can't act uh, in, in the midst of all of that. Tell me about the book Con- Contended Dementia and how that fit, uh, how the ideas within that fit into what the production is doing, if you would, Dan. It's uh, by Oliver James and it's a very popular book. It seems to be a perennial bestseller. Often when people have somebody in their lives that has dementia, they reach for it. And it it advocates that system that I told you, the Speckle method, Mm. whereby you actively identify this old memory and you try and keep people in it. And not keep people in it, but rather know that that's where they want to be and don't deny it, really. Um, And one of the things that they said seemed very familiar to me from doing improvisation, right? The, The sort of golden rules don't ask questions say yes and agree and step in and listen and react to what other people have said is is the kind of mantra that they give people for interacting with people with dementia and that seemed really yeah. familiar to me and so i thought that might be an opportunity for that to for that to 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 echo um, the, um, so that that book was a part, an important part of your research, mm. obviously. But you also were involved with um, people like the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and the Carers Network. How did that um, inform what you put down on the page and and worked out eventually? Well, it was hugely important. I mean, usually I'll really only start with an outline before I've put in pen to paper, and mm. usually working with uh, with actors as well. But from an early stage, we were talking to say the Dementia Carers Campaign Network who did really great group Zoom meetings with us where they shared their stories, where they talked about the lived experience of what it's like to care for somebody with dementia, a family carer, and the kind of family dynamics that come out of that. And also at the Irish Dementia Working Group, which is a group of people living with dementia who advocate on behalf of other people with dementia. And and so that kind of lived experience was really important. And one of the things I got from that was that there is no one experience of going through mm. the disease. You know, this is you've met one person with dementia and you've met one person with dementia. And so there is no definitive story about it. So in some ways that gave us a bit of freedom, I suppose, to yeah. tell the story of joy. But also you'll see it in there. It has, I think, and from what I've spoken to about the people from those mm. groups that have seen it, a kind of... Um, an authenticity in the experience. And the balance between, obviously, people who are involved as carers or indeed family members of a person with some form of dementia will have been a primary target audience for you um, and 
people who would have seen the production that did so well uh, back last year. But the balance between that and the familial story that you're telling of this fictional character of Connor trying to reconcile things with his mother who is now uh, has dementia. How, what was the balance there? Well, I mean, I guess the reason why that story of Lear and Cordelia coming, you know, becoming mm. estranged, coming back together is that it does end up recurring again and again, whether people have dementia or not, I suppose. And so it is an old story of family dynamics. You know, I mean, I was talking to one person who um, was sort of outraged that uh, their shared father, you know, their father, mm. two siblings, couldn't remember the other person's name and said, tell him who you are. Tell him who you are, won't you? And she said, I don't need to do that. I don't need to be getting in his way. If he wants to call me another name, that's okay. I'm here to look after him. And then those two people simply couldn't couldn't see eye to eye on this particular method, this particular way of going about things. And so it's about the way in which we'll all go through that journey differently, I think. Um, you, you've, and the billings for the play <laughs> Lost Lear, <laughs> written by Dan Carley. Collie, actually. Collie, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lost Lear by Dan Carley. No, I was wondering what <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was. Yeah. By Dan Carley, with the company yeah. after Shakespeare. Yeah, it's a mouthful, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but with the company is the important part. Yeah, there. so that's the thing. Like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll start out with this broad idea of an outline, but really in order for it to come together, I'm pulling in mm. a group of different people to improvise around various scenes that I'll sort of set up. We'll record those in long, long form and then they'll get honed down to the final script and... For me, I mean, for starters, I'm just not the kind of genius that can sit down and write a play in front of a, a typewriter. I just can't look at the blank page and make that happen. So mm. this is what works for my brain. But I think inadvertently the effect that it has is that I think action and text become much more united than they otherwise would be. Which is what play, play uh, writing and play acting is all about. I think so. Like it's about the yeah. event, right? <laughs> you know, okay. there's a lot of things that I might have otherwise written that they can play in a look or something can be done really beautifully with design. So it's uh, that's the way I like to do it anyway. And it's the only way I know. Probably. Well, that is the title of the play Lost Lear by Dan Colley and the company after Shakespeare uh, and it will be performed it starts it begins a nationwide tour at the Riverbank Arts Centre in Newbridge in County Kildare on October the 19th and indeed Dan you're artist in residence at the, the Riverbank from there it travels to nine other counties over 11 performances but full details of all of the venues and the performances nationwide are on riverbank.ie and that is our lot for this Tuesday evening Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Mark McGrath was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby I will be back with you tomorrow night 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 John Creedon will be with you after the news